going to read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. This is uh, the very Word of God. It's holy, infallible, inerrant. It's authoritative. God has given it to us that we would, would know Him rightly, know ourselves rightly, and, and relate rightly to, to Him and others. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father in heaven, we come before you, all of us affected by the fall, affected by brokenness, afflicted, as, as this passage says. Um, God, would you give us hope? Hope that would not just comfort us, but drive us to comfort others. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Of course, we've been in the midst of a, a sermon series on relationships and relating to the people around us. And we've talked about marriage and divorce and parenting and, and all sorts of things along the way. Today, we're going to talk about relating in the midst of brokenness to those who are broken or afflicted or those sorts of things as this, as this passage refers to them. We're all affected by the fall. Brokenness touches all of our lives. Um, the sin that was uh, that originally came in the garden has has flowed down to all of us, affecting all of us in, in different ways. This brokenness looks different in, in all of us. It, it may manage, manifest itself in, in many, many different ways. It might show up in relational brokenness, broken families, broken marriages, broken friendships, etc. It might show up in physical brokenness, brokenness from birth defects and handicaps and injuries and disease and mental illness and autism and learning disorders. And we could go on and on and, and on about the effects there. You know, it might show up in addiction and inability to say no consistently to things that bring harm to us and or to, to those around us. It might even manifest it way, itself in ways that don't seem harmful but are detrimental in our lives and the lives of those around us, be it overworking or overeating or using positions of authority for harm instead of good and service. You know, it might show up in, in laziness or a billion other acts and attitudes that tear down rather than build up us and, and those around us. As I mentioned earlier, today is Orphan Awareness Sunday or Stand Sunday, uh, Stand for Foster Kids in, in that sense. Um, as a church, we've encouraged involvement in orphan care ministries for many years. Many people connect in or connected to our church uh, have been involved in adoption and foster care. We've been blessed to have our church and community involved in ministry to, to hurting children and their families. But we also know that when we do ministry in the midst of brokenness, uh, for example, in the lives of orphans and their families, it brings hardship into our lives and into our church and into our community. As, as Christians and as a church, we're called to willingly enter into this brokenness together, to support the families that, that make this commitment to love those who are often unloved, to care for those who have often been rejected, to persevere with those who have often been left behind by their birth families, by their communities, by all that they know and love. We see this as an example of how God has called us to comfort uh, those around us. But not every family's hardship and encounter with brokenness involves orphans. 
We have families in our church and community who are in need of support because of their kids or often even the parents themselves are touched by many or all of the things that we've already mentioned this morning. There's brokenness that is rampant in our lives and in our community. And uh, loving families well means getting involved in the blessings of, of messiness. It's what we see in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 there is a call to embrace the privilege of loving broken and hurting people. So we're going to look at two things this morning. First, we'll see what this passage says about the God of all comfort. And, and then we're going to look at this passage and some others uh, to see the hope that's present uh, for those who, who suffer in, in many different ways. Um, you know, God comforts us in our affliction and our brokenness so that we might comfort those around us with the comfort that comes from God. We see this here in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. See what he says? He says, the, the, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's given thanks, he's given praise, uh, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. Now he's going to elaborate on that. And he says, the, the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So he says, you need comfort. That's true for all of you. In your affliction, we're all afflicted by the fall. In our affliction, we all need comfort. God has provided comfort to us. We'll ultimately see that comes through Jesus to us. And, and like I said, for our good and for his glory, he sent Jesus to give us comfort. But he says it doesn't stop there. That, that we have been comforted so that we might in turn turn and comfort people the people around us. What God is saying here is that we, the church, are conduits of comfort to all of those around us who are hurting. And this passage assumes that we're all afflicted, that none of us are unaffected by the fall. And none of us have permission to wallow in our affliction and and neglect the people around us, to become self-centered, to only care about our affliction, to be, woe is me, why aren't people caring about me, even though there is an expectation that in the church we should be cared for. The, the call here is, an, is a call to live outward, that even in our affliction, even as we embrace and look for the comfort of God in our lives, this passage calls us to be others-centered, to look to others who need to be comforted. And, and the, the blessing and beauty of this is that because we need comfort, we can, in humility, knowing that we need comfort, not shame the others who need comfort, might in compassion and mercy turn towards them with a face of love and care and kindness. What's pictured here is, is hurting people reaching out to other hurting people. Like I said, it breeds a community of humility and hospitality and leaves no room for pride in our own hearts. So here's an example. Often we go... <coughs> You know, often we'll go somewhere and we'll see a family that's struggling to control uh, one of their kids or maybe all their kids or, or whatnot. You know, we're, we're, you know, we see this in so many different environments. We, we have a few different reactions in this situation. Here, here are two. First, we could say to ourselves, those people need to get their kids under control. That may be true. People, you know, we say to ourselves, people these days just don't know how to parent their children. If I had acted like that, my mama would have, or we say, if, I, if that were my kid, I would. <clears throat> but the reality is we don't know that situation. We don't know what's causing what's going on there other than the fall and the sense of brokenness that we know affects all of us. So on the other hand, we could say to ourselves, 
I wonder how I could offer that family some help. And it may be that the situation just allows us to maybe just pray for them and, and not be judgmental. <laughs> to maybe by, but at best, by not assuming the worst about them. And then maybe if we see the opportunity in the situations, right, actually offering without condescension some, some practical help. Carrying some groceries. Helping someone carry it, you know, whatever needs to go on to help with the situation. We can probably all remember times that we wanted to leave our grocery carts or have left our grocery carts in the middle of an aisle at a grocery store and just walked out. Any of y'all done that? You're so fed up with the situation when your own kids are so embarrassing, you're just like, I can't do this anymore. I'm out of here. You know, it could have been because our kids were sick or we as parents were at our wit's end or not getting sleep or maybe there's something deeper going on in relationships and temperament and a hidden disability. You know, maybe this is a young mom with an overworked husband and she hasn't had any meaningful adult interaction since this child was born. And when she is around adults, all they do is judge her and look down on her. She's in the midst of postpartum depression, wondering if her body and her brain are ever going to function in the way they once did. And in that moment, when God has put her in our pathway, we, called to be a conduit of God's grace, a conduit of God's comfort, can love her and assume the best about her or we can heap shame on her by assuming the worst about her. And we may think, my kids never acted that way, and that may be true. But we don't know what's going on in that moment. Our calling is to comfort. So let's make that our first action step. To not assume the worst, but assume that she's normal. Or he's normal. And that kid's normal. Because in our world, brokenness is normal. It is the norm. We are all affected by the fall. If we find out in building a relationship with this person, this family, whoever it is, that there is negligence of some sort that's driving this behavior, then maybe we can help with that in an appropriate way. But let's not assume that's the case. Let's seek to love and understand and help first. And even more so with the people around us that we already have a relationship with. If we have people in our lives, in our church, in our neighborhoods who are hurting and afflicted, and maybe in certain ways, we can do, what, what can we do to serve and love them? You know, I remember when Reggie, where's Reggie? Somewhere. Oh, there you go. I remember when Reggie was undergoing cancer treatment. A friend of his, just started showing up at his house and cutting his grass. Didn't ask, didn't, I don't know if he asked or not, I don't think he did. <laughs> just showed up and started serving him. What can I do? Looked around. That's not burdensome. Takes a little time, a little effort. It's just say, looking around and going, there's someone who's afflicted. How can I help it? Serve and love them. Here's a practical way. And I know it's impactful because I think I heard Carolee tell that story at least five or six or seven or ten or twenty times. Because it meant something. And not that the grass was cut. They could have paid somebody to cut the grass. That somebody cared for them in their affliction. The God of all comfort. Comforting through us. We're conduits of comfort. Oftentimes it may be messier and more time consuming than cutting someone's grass, right? 
One of the families in our church that's affected by special needs has said that one of the most practical things that they need help with is doing paperwork for doctors. Just filling out form after form after form of repetitive information is just draining in a way that we wouldn't expect it to be. Can you come along and help me fill out some forms every once in a while? Practical help. Practical help. Costs us some time, some energy, but we get to build a relationship in the midst of that. So there's blessings that come with being conduits of comfort. I'm sure we could all think of ways that we could use some help and some some ways that we could offer some help. We need to step up and be willing to get involved in the lives of others, offering comfort in the midst of affliction. You know, verse 5 here is interesting. Look what it says. It says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. The, the presence of suffering often makes us wonder if God is truly loving and kind. With, with all the suffering in the world, including in our own lives, we wonder what that says about who God is. If you know, We all have asked the question or we've heard the question, if, if with all this suffering... How can God be good? How can God even be real? Well, the Bible actually answers that question, gives us hope in the midst of our suffering. And so this verse reminds us that God himself is not immune to suffering. When he sent his son into this world to live as a human, he didn't put him in an ivory ivory palace, ivory tower somewhere where he would be shielded from the realities of this world. He sent him into a common family with a common home, with a common occupation and a common community. Jesus experienced life as a human in all of its fullness outside of sin. Except for for sin. And he wasn't exempted from suffering. He was constantly being falsely accused of heresy. He was abandoned by his friends in his greatest time of need. He suffered the horrors of death by crucifixion after being beaten and tortured by his enemies. The suffering of our Savior gives us peace in our suffering. God doesn't turn his back on us in the face of suffering. He comes near to us and embraces suffering with us, alongside of us. And his suffering reminds us that we have someone that we can cry out to in our time of need who understands what it's like to suffer on this earth. When people say they can't trust a God who allows such suffering, we can gently remind them and help them understand that the, the God of the universe is a God who embraces and has been affected himself by suffering. And while we don't have answers for every problem that arises, we know that we have a God who doesn't turn his back on those who suffer, but he took on flesh and moved into our neighborhood to bring us comfort by joining us in the midst of our suffering, offering us hope and compassion in the presence of our pain. He overcame, the, and, and this is the important part, right? He overcame the reality of this suffering and offers us the same hope. That there's hope beyond the suffering. When Christ suffers, He goes into a grave dead. But in hope for us, He rises from the dead and lives forever, ascends into heaven, and He's coming back to take us to that same reality beyond our suffering so that we can join Him in the beauty of everlasting life where our suffering will finally be behind us and joy and peace will reign forevermore. All of that because He endured the suffering of this world and offers us comfort when we suffer as well. So in the midst of our suffering, the Gospel offers us everlasting and real and present hope. 
It's not just a future hope, it's also a present hope that we can cling to today. And we often wonder in the midst of our suffering if we can make it through or if there will ever be any relief. And the gospel gives us hope. The glory of the resurrection gives us the hope of being made whole. In Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist has, you know, he's, at this point, he's already baptized Jesus. He's already heard the voice from heaven that said, this is my son and whom I'm well pleased. John, of all people, should get that this guy, that Jesus is the Messiah. And it's his cousin. But he's, he, Jesus isn't doing the things that John maybe expected him to do. And so he sends some of his followers to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And here's what Jesus tells him. John's basically saying, wait, are you the Messiah? I, I thought you were the Messiah, but I'm starting to doubt. Are, are you really the Messiah? And here's what Jesus says. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. So he's saying there's outward evidence that's been manifested proving that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So what does Jesus say? That the proof of his, this is before his resurrection, the proof that his ministry is well, that he is the one whom God has sent, is that suffering is alleviated. That brokenness is changed to wholeness. The lame will walk. The blind will see. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf will hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. This is evidence. And so it's natural for us to go, great, can I get that evidence? He doesn't promise, though, for us that that will be made complete in this life. For some of us, that may be true. There may be, some of us may experience a miracle where the blind see and the lame walk and the deaf hear. We, but we do not doubt, we should not doubt his goodness if we do not experience that fullness in this life because we know that there's fullness in the life to come. The promises are for now. They give us hope in the now, even if the cure doesn't come now for some of those things. But they give us hope to look to the future. That there's a future glory of which we are pursuing. Uh, the, the healing, like I said, may not come to pass in this life, but we're promised it will be full in the next. Here's what Revelation 21 says. He says, uh, this is John having a vision, a different John, this is the Apostle John, having a vision of what of heaven looks like. And so he says, I, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So it's pointing to a permanent day when we live in relation in relational unity with God. We have that in a sense now, but one day it will be made full. He says, along with that, this happens. He says, he, talking about God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The lame, the blind, the deaf, the poor, all former things that will pass away. We can connect these dots throughout the Scripture. These things are all connected to this mourning and crying and pain that Revelation's healing, that we see in the healing of Revelation 21. And it comes through the work of the Lamb who was slain. Remember what's at the center of glory? Remember in, back in Revelation, earlier in Revelation, John has a vision of the throne room of heaven. 
And he says, he's, he's looking in the throne room. He's told, this is the throne room. And he says, I'm looking for the Lion of Judah. And he's, he's there, and the crowd's keeping him from seeing the throne. But as the, cloud, as the crowd splits before the throne, he says, I looked, and he says, basically, I saw the Lion of Judah, one like a lamb who had been slain. The lion is the lamb. Jesus suffered. And when John saw the glory and beauty of heaven, he saw the lamb who had been slain, who had suffered on our behalf, who had given himself, who had suffered the pains of crucifixion, who had suffered the pains of earthly suffering, and yet lives forevermore as the lion of Judah in the throne room of heaven as the lamb who has been slain. Jesus is the glory of where we're heading and he offers us hope now as we travel the road to get there. And it's a road of suffering. It's a road filled with the effects of sin. You may have heard me talk before about Joni Erickson Tata. On July 30th, 1969, she's a 17-year-old athletic young lady who dove into the Chesapeake Bay and had her life changed forever. That, that incident, when she dove into that lake, paralyzed her from the neck down. And so she lives to this day as a, a total quadriplegic. She is a Christian, though. She's an artist, an author, a popular speaker. She started a ministry called um, Joni and Friends that supports uh, people with disabilities. After her accident, she began thinking about life a lot, of course, and, and what it means, what it meant for her in the midst of her disability. And she thought a lot about Jesus and the resurrection and what those things mean to her. She says that even as she thought about Jesus as he hung on the cross, her thoughts about him were that she connected with the fact that he was immobilized, helpless, paralyzed in a sense. Like her, what gave her the most comfort, though, was the resurrection. Here's what she says. She says, I have hope for the future now. The Bible speaks of our bodies being glorified in heaven. I now know the meaning of being glorified. It's the time after my death here when I'll be on my feet dancing. She said, I can scarcely believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone spinal cord injured like me? or someone who is cerebral palsied or brain injured or who has multiple sclerosis. Imagine the hope this gives someone who is manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible joy. She writes of the time that she was uh, at a Christian convention where the speaker at the close of his talk invited the people to bow on their knees and pray. Said she watched as... The people in that room knelt, but she could only watch. She's physically incapable of kneeling. Uh, She couldn't stop her tears from flowing. She thought of her upbringing in the Reformed Episcopal Church where it had been common to kneel for times of prayer. And those moments she remembered, in in that moment she remembered the resurrection. And this is what she wrote. She said, sitting there, I was reminded that in heaven, I will be free to jump up, dance, kick, and do aerobics. And although I'm sure Jesus will be delighted to watch me rise on tiptoe, there's something I plan to do that may please him more. 
If possible, somewhere, sometime before the party gets going, sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is drop on grateful, glorified knees. I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. She says repeatedly, I can't wait. The Apostle John says at the end of the scriptures, at the end of the book of Revelation, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Where does that hunger for Jesus come from? It's an overflow from knowing that he is the satisfaction for our brokenness. He's the satisfaction for our brokenness. And we, the church, those who trust and believe in Jesus and look to him for hope in the midst of our own affliction, are the conduits of that comfort to a lost and dying world who is only identified by their suffering. We have the privilege of even being, even though we are marked by suffering, we're identified with glory. Because the glory that we hold on to, the glory of Jesus, resurrected, made whole, made right, eternally our King, is greater than the suffering to which our whole world screams out, this identifies who we are, this marks us, this defines us. And we say, it's real. We don't deny it, but at the same time, we look beyond it and say, there is a glory beyond this that we're holding on to. And so it gives us hope in the midst of our suffering because we know that this is temporary and the glory is forever. If you've got your Bibles, turn over to Romans chapter 8. We're going to look down at verse 18 where Paul talks about future glory. Here's what he says. I'm just going to start reading this. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. You see what he says there? This is real, but that is beyond compare. So I I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation of which we are a part, but even all of creation affected by the fall, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's the day when Christ brings us into the fullness of his glory. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you see that? That... Our hope is that all creation will enter into the glory that we already have as the children of God. It's already real and true for us. We're just waiting for its consummation. 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, for the day when our adoption will be complete is what that's getting at. And that day is the redemption of our bodies. When Christ returns and our, our, our soul and our bodies are reconnected and go to be with God in glory forever. That's what he's talking about. That's the day that we're longing for. 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? You go, 
I have a hard time believing this. Yes, because in so many ways, it's what we would call unbelievable. That's what faith is. Faith is being certain of what we hope for, sure of what we do not see. And so we live in this faith. 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Okay, but what about in the meantime? How do we get through today? Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit who lives within us, who is a gift of God to all those who believe, who lives within us, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We go, I'm so distressed by my suffering, I don't even know how to ask for relief. Have you been there? We all get there. Some of us live there. What do we do in that moment? We do not know what to pray for as we ought. So the, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts, that's God Himself, knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You see what's going on? I am so distressed, I don't even know how to pray for relief. But the Spirit that God has given me lives within me and knows everything about me and prays to God on my behalf and cries out to Him. We have the Spirit of God living within us, giving us hope. What does that hope look like? 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What does that glorification look like? This right here. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. One day our suffering will die. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Lord is with us in our suffering. So here's what we know. If we ever feel helpless, ever feel hopeless in a sense, we know that in Christ, through the Spirit, we are never alone. We are never helpless. We are always helped because He knows and He is with us. In the most intimate of ways, the Spirit of God is with us in the midst of our suffering. And He has called all of us to help. We are the arms and legs and face of Jesus to those around us who are living in the midst of brokenness. Our hope, my hope, is that the broken around us will see the smile of Jesus when we are around. They'll know that we care for them. We love them. We've got some, some things coming up soon that's going to uh, give us some opportunities to get involved. Next week, uh, Diddy Whetstein is going to share uh, about our care team plans that we're setting up and getting in place to care for some of our families in our own church that need help. It just needs some assistance along the way. And so next week, Dee Dee's going to kind of share some of the plans that she's been uh, seeking, uh, starting to put in place as the head of our, our Westminster care team. And also in the coming weeks, Brad, um, Brad Griffith's going to give an update on the work of Clement Arts, things that are going on in our building, the families that are being reached, the kids that are involved in, in the arts here, but also their work in 
helping set up care communities in churches around our community for, to help support those who are doing the work of foster care and adoption care and orphan care and all those sorts of things that ministries inclined towards those. So we're going to hear about how some of these things are going on and maybe some ways we can get involved. You're also going to see show up on the, the back of our bulletin in a couple of weeks as I'm working to, to kind of perfect the language uh, a little bit. Uh, a new statement welcoming special needs families into our church, telling them that when they walk in the door, they see something, they say, well, I should feel welcomed here. And what that means is that if we're going to reach out to the hurting families around us, particularly those with you know, with special needs and, and those sorts of things. We've got to be ready to walk through the hardships, the brokenness, that is reality in their lives, to be a conduit through which comfort and peace and joy come from God into their lives, which means if we invite families, you know, for example, with autistic kids into our church, guess what those kids aren't going to do? They aren't going to sit quietly and peacefully for an hour and a half in a worship service. They're going to make noise. They're going to draw. They're going to ask their parents questions. They're going to go to the bathroom. They're going to, what are we going to do? Are we going to shame that family and say, well, you should get your kids under control? Or are we going to say, how can I help? How can I help? How can I help? God's called us to be conduits of comfort. We should be thankful that God's using us to reach broken people. Because if God didn't reach broken people, none of us would be reached. We are all in need of the comfort of God, of the grace of God that comes through the church. It comes through believers. We are comforted by God that we might comfort others. So my hope is that we would be a church that welcomes everyone made in the image of God to enter into a relationship with the God of all comfort and the people of the God of all comfort. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for being our God. We're thankful that you're a God who comforts the afflicted because we're the afflicted in different ways, to different degrees. Our affliction is real, but none of us are exempt. We're all affected by the fall. We're all affected by the brokenness of this world, and we all come to you because you are the only source of our hope. God, would you use us as a church to love those around us, to be a conduit of comfort to those who are afflicted? So many have been rejected by society, by the church, by their families, and so many things. Would you help us to be people who, instead of rejecting those around us, step into the discomfort of their brokenness and say, how can I help? <coughs> to share our stories of being healed by brokenness, of the process of healing that's maybe ongoing, of at least the hope that we have, that one day we'll be healed in glory and that we would identify well with those around us and seek to comfort and love and offer a helping hand and the smile of Jesus to those who, are, who feel shamed and embarrassed by their brokenness. Would you help us to love them and care for them that they might hear and understand and know and experience the love of Jesus and find everlasting life and hope beyond the brokenness of this world where we're all made whole in Jesus Christ. Give us faith. Give those around us faith. That we might believe and trust that you are the God of all comfort. Help us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.